1: It's a roller coaster that the families have been going on for so long, being torn by both hope and anticipation and fear that maybe they will be told that their family members are not alive anymore.
2: I'm David Knowles, and this is Battle Lines Israel Gaza.
0: The terrorist group Hamas unleashed pure, unadulterated evil in the world. But sadly, the Jewish people know perhaps better than anyone that there is no limit to the depravity of people when they want to inflict pain on others.
1: Like, every place I go, I go run away, and I just find bombs, and I find dead people. And, like, maybe one day I'll end up like them, but it's a really scary thing for me. (laughs)
2: people telling me that, you know, mostly this is about Hamas, but they're also angry with absolutely everybody.
3: I'm begging the world to bring my baby back home.
2: In this episode of Battlelines, I speak to Middle East correspondent Natalia Vasilieva and foreign reporter Verity Bowman about the anticipated temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas and the impending release of hostages after weeks of bloody fighting. Natalia also speaks about the time she spent with the families of hostages kidnapped by Hamas, and Verity talks us through the situation in Gaza as disease stalks the streets. This episode comes to you earlier than usual, as the Hamas-Israel hostage deal and temporary ceasefire are due to start tomorrow morning. And we'll of course try to bring you updates tomorrow as well. It's Thursday, the 23rd of November. Well, thank you so much for your time. Natalia, can you talk us through some of the major events of the past week?
1: Hi, everyone. Yeah, obviously the main thing that has overshadowed everything is the much anticipated hostage release deal between Israel and Hamas that was mediated by Qatar. Just earlier this week, we heard that the deal was imminent, that hostages were about to be released on Thursday, that a ceasefire in exchange for the return of the hostages will kick off on Thursday morning. But as if Thursday afternoon in Israel. It hasn't happened yet. Now, we heard from both parties that general terms of the deal have already been agreed. The general idea is that Israel will cease fire for at least four days. And um, on each of the day, it will receive 10 Israeli hostages kept in Gaza and 20 hostages on the fourth day, which would mean a total of 50 people. Israel also committed to release all of the female and teenage prisoners in Israeli jail, which would be about uh, 150 people as far as I remember. There was also talk about possibly extending the ceasefire deal. I, I was talking to one senior Israeli official yesterday, and he said that they were not opposed to an idea of holding fire for a bit longer and and seeing if Hamas was willing to release more hostages. But in general, the Israeli government insists that it's just a pause. They keep calling it a pause in fighting. They're, They're saying that they will want to pick up where they left off in Gaza. They will want to carry on with the war and that the ceasefire will last for a maximum of nine days. So uh, the deal was finalized on um, late Tuesday evening. We were expecting that it will come into effect on Thursday morning, but in the late hours on Wednesday, we started hearing that Israel and Hamas had some still had some technical details to go through. Both parties insist that the deal is on that it would be happening. The head of Israel's National Security Council said on Thursday morning that the hostages will be freed, as promised, but he did say that Friday is the earliest that this this can be expected. At the same time, we had Palestinian officials telling news agencies that Israel and Hamas are still trying to find common ground on the names of the hostages and the terms of their handover. What we heard previously is that Both Israel and Hamas have their lists. Now, Israel has the list of Palestinian female and teenage prisoners in Israel jail. And Hamas has the list of Israeli kids and their mothers in their captivity. The list of Palestinian prisoners has been released. It's available. Those names are in the public domain. But basically, we still don't know who Hamas is willing to release, there's a lot of uncertainty about it. For example, we know for sure that uh, there is 39, 39 children overall in captivity in Gaza, whereas Hamas admitted to holding 30 children. Now, there's an issue about what, what happened to the other nine children. Hamas admitted from the start that the attack on October the 7th was so chaotic that there were other factions that took part, the Islamic Jihad, other militants, also people who might be described as civilians who just crossed the border and grabbed whatever they could at the kibbutzim or whoever they could. So Hamas to this day claims that it has no control of all of the hostages and it doesn't even know where all of the hostages are. And it says that not all of the children hostages are in its custody. So you would need time to locate people. So obviously, that's a bit of a stick-in, sticking point right now, despite the fact that there seems that there's a general consensus in Israel in favor of the deal. The deal was officially adopted by the Israeli government on uh, Tuesday evening, despite the opposition from one far-right party that voted against it but looks like the deal is going to happen just thursday morning if we want to talk a bit about the foreign policy dimension of it well just just um, just before, just before we, that
2: natalia could we ask um hmm. how, how is the deal how is the reporting of this what does this look like in, in israel How has it gone down with with ordinary israelis
1: Well, I would say that the public opinion has been primed for the deal already because we are now, I mean, the war in Gaza has been going on for almost two months. And families of the hostages have often criticized the government for prioritizing the ground operation in Gaza over diplomatic efforts to secure the release at least of some of their hostages. There are regular protests by the hostages' families, by, by supporters of the hostages' family. They claim that the, the government is not doing enough to at least secure the release of some of the most vulnerable people, like, like kids and their mothers. And obviously, the Israeli society is on the tender hooks. I mean, everyone is expecting that to happen, but it's such a worrying time for everyone because no one knows who is going to be released when? Why? I just mentioned about the number of children, the fact that there's still no one quite knows or claims to know where everyone is. And also, you know, that, that, that list might be there, but we still don't know if everyone who has been kidnapped is alive, that, that those people are going to come back alive.
2: And just before we go to Verity, Natalia, could you uh, go on and talk a little bit about the sort of diplomatic situation? How has the, the, the region and the world reacted to this?
1: Yeah, the hostage deal has won broad support In the West and across the Middle East, several prominent politicians in the Middle East in countries like Jordan have welcomed the deal and and, and said that they hope that it could pave way to a lasting truce, even though Israel claimed that it has no intentions to stop fighting. There's a flurry of diplomatic activity in Israel this week, just on Thursday morning. We have uh, David Cameron in town. Early Thursday morning, he went to the Kibbutz of Be'ari, one of the sites of the of some of the worst massacres of the Hamas attack where 108 people were killed in the space of one afternoon. We have the the Foreign Minister of Spain flying to Israel later this week. Overall, it's interesting to see how Israel has been coordinating with with Qatar, the the country that appears to have a unique leverage on, on Hamas that has helped us to secure the deal. Obviously, Israel has been accusing Qatar of giving shelter to Hamas leadership. I mean, l- leaders of Hamas have been able to live in luxury in Doha all of those months. And uh, we know that they've been receiving funding from from Qatar. At the same time, Israel is not breaking any relations with Qatar. You know, they're trying to stay civilized, even though some of the recent re- rhetoric was quite stark when Israeli diplomats of the record are on the record, basically accuse Qatar of supporting terrorism.
2: Thank you so much, Natalia. We'll come back to you later because I know there's there's more stories you want to talk about. Therati Bowman, thank you so much for joining us. What have you been looking at in the past week?
3: In the past week, my main focus has been looking into this looming health crisis that we have in Gaza. So to sort of give you an overview, cases of severe diarrhoea have already been sweeping through the population, but now experts are worried that typhoid and cholera outbreaks could quickly follow. They've warned that mortality couldn't end up being very high if a health emergency is allowed to develop. So to give a bit of a background, the crisis has developed because Israeli bombing has destroyed much of Gaza's sanitation infrastructure. It's left sewage running through the streets. And shortages of clean water and antibiotics are threatening to tip the already precarious situation into a health crisis. To give some figures on this, at least 830 Gazans now reside in crowded shelters. And 70% of people in the south of Gaza have no access to clean water, according to the World Health Organization. Um, To give a bit of an explanation, overcrowding encourages the spread of disease, while the lack of sanitary water increases the risk of waterborne infections like diarrhea, cholera and, as we mentioned, typhoid, all of which can be really deadly without the adequate medical care. Experts say that there are cases of typhoid that are unreported because of infrastructure damage and that cholera could follow. An issue that the World Health Organization is facing at the minute is that routine surveillance systems are currently just not functioning. And this is actually hampering effective detection and the ability to respond to threats of public health before they get wildly out of control. Part of my work looking into this has been speaking to local charities on the ground who are working to prevent as much of a disease spread as they can. One of these charities was focusing on cleaning shelters in southern Gaza with chemical agents. Workers from the NGO, which was called NERA, were toiling to sanitise 55 shelters in southern Gaza in a bid to kill lingering infections, and they were doing 24-hour shifts, cleaning around 10 shelters per day. And this, of course, isn't without challenges. Disinfectant supplies are in short supply due to blockages on the border with Egypt and a lack of fuel. I spoke to Sean Carroll, who is Anira's president and CEO, who told me that there had been many times that their staff feared that they would just not be able to go on with their work. I also spoke to Amar Nagar, who is Anira's medical donations program officer in Gaza. And he gave us a picture of what the situation for refugees is like in the camps. He said that dermatological diseases resulting from overcrowding are spreading like wildfire due to the absence of hygienic tools, many water and very limited number of bathrooms. He also noticed many waterborne diseases like parasitic infections. And he said as well that he expects to see cholera cases in the near future because of the unclean water and untreated sewage. One of the really heartbreaking things that he pointed out is that many women have lost their babies due to dire conditions. I'll give you a few figures here now so that you can get a picture of the sheer scale of a health crisis. So since November 10, around 10,000 people have been diagnosed with acute respiratory infections, while scabies and lice have reportedly affected 10,952 individuals. A further 8,202 people have been diagnosed with diarrhoea, and 51% of these are under the age of five. And we know that without proper care diarrhea can quickly turn deadly for infants. And all of this, of course, comes on top of a really dire humanitarian crisis going on. So the World Health Programme has reported an increase in cases of dehydration and malnutrition, and they've warned about the threat of starvation due to the collapse of food supply chains and insufficient aid delivery. Shelters in Gaza, as we said, are overcrowded as people flee from the north. And we've seen reports of people left to sleep outside on the ground with no blankets. Staff have been displaced themselves and they're living in crowded areas with poor access to food, water and power. They told me they're exhausted and are quite literally putting their lives at risk going out to deliver relief. No place is safe in Gaza.
2: Thank you, Verity. Can I ask how difficult is it at the moment to stay in touch with your sources in Gaza?
3: It's incredibly difficult to get in touch with them at the moment due to all of the communication blockages. The only way that I've managed to get it to work so far is using WhatsApp and sort of just hoping to get any replies that they can send whenever they get phone signal. A lot of the time, it's easier for them to record themselves speaking and send me voice notes in reply to my questions. And I do spend a lot of time relying on charities like Anera to be the middleman and to make sure that these connections are being made, for which I'm very grateful.
2: Just before we go back to Natalia, obviously we've heard the past three weeks from yourself and Lilia Sebwai about the conditions in, in Gaza, especially Gaza and hospitals and healthcare. Do you think the situation is still getting worse? Is, is there much hope? I mean, f- from what you've said, it seems pretty dire.
3: I think that the situation continues to be quite dire and I don't see it picking up for a little while. Although we have seen supplies coming in from Egypt and this has been a help, we are also seeing that a lot of hospitals just aren't functioning. I saw a figure earlier today that around 60% of healthcare facilities in Gaza are not functioning at all. So there's just not enough there for people. I also saw reports of people without surgical training having to work on amputations and other surgeries because there simply aren't enough staff members around. So, yeah, um, I do think the situation will continue to be quite dire until some big changes are made.
2: And Verity, we've got some more information about the growing death toll in Qatar. What can you tell us about this?
3: So, as many of you know, we've had a bit of a gap in reporting on the death toll from about November 11th because of a breakdown of access and communication in northern Gaza. Well, today we've had the first official death toll in quite a while. We've seen that more than 13,000 people have been killed in Gaza, and that's according to the director of the Hamas-run health ministry. And what we do know is that the real toll is likely to be much higher the health ministry says that another six thousand people have been reported missing, and it's feared that many of these people are buried under the rubble.
2: Thank you so much, Verity Natalia. Can I ask, everything that Verity's told us is that is that kind of thing being reported in Israel as well? Do people have an idea of what's happening in Gaza, or, or not?
1: Well, it's a very long story. I can talk about it for hours. The thing is, you know, obviously as someone coming coming from Russia, I am familiar with a um, landscape where. The other side of the story is not being told. It's being censored. Uh, websites are being blocked. All of that is widely available. I mean, Israel is a democracy. You have liberal media. You have newspapers. You have news channels. You have radio, which are reporting what's, what's happening in, in Gaza. But Israel's become increasingly right wing and mainstream media. Rarely reports on that. All of that information is publicly available. If you're an Israeli and if you read in Hebrew, you can, whatever, type in Gaza and and you'll see all of that on Haretz, on uh, Radio Khan, on reputable good media outlets that are available that's not being censored. The question is, like, what does the middleman read or, or watch? And I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say that the most popular TV channels or tabloids, they're not really covering Gaza. Obviously, they are, they're focusing on the tragedy inside Israel, but you know, it, it has a long history of, of how uh, Israel's mainstream media is basically choosing, choosing to ignore the tragedies that have been happening in Gaza and in the West Bank for years.
2: Natalia, can we stay with you? You mentioned the uh, the hostage deal made between Israel and Hamas. You've been speaking to some of the families of the Israeli hostages. What was that like? Where did you go and what did they tell you?
1: Yeah, uh, well, I went to Tel Aviv yesterday, which is Israel's commercial capital, where hostages' families have been gathering for, for many days and weeks for, for protests, for informal meetings. People who are not familiar with the details of the deal might think that it would be a cause for celebration, that the families would be happy, relieved to hear that their relatives will be released. But again, we're talking about almost 20 to 140 people who have been taken hostage. And under the terms of the deal, we're not going to see more than 100 people released. So half of them will still be in captivity. And hostages' families that I spoke to, an absolute agony over waiting, hoping that their family members would be released because we know how it goes, right? We know that they're giving priority to children, they're giving priority to mothers of those children, then women, elderly, and sort of all the way down the line. And obviously, you know, they, they were soldiers who were captured. They were male soldiers, female soldiers. And it's quite clear that those, those families don't have much hope that they're going to see their families members anytime soon. Also, unlike other hostage crises in Israel, which were nothing in comparison in the scale, you know, you would have one hostage like Gilad Shalit in the early 2000s. And the whole country monitored what was happening around him. There were multiple proofs of life. The whole country knew that he was alive. And we're talking about 200 people. We still don't know who is alive and who's not. I, yesterday evening, I went to a square outside uh, the Tel Aviv Museum of Art, which came to be known as the Hostages Plaza which is where um, hostages families are often holding events and rallies and th- their friends and well-wishers are, are, are coming to cheer. And I just bumped into um, this group of several women. I think there were four women and one man. They were all wearing those identical black T-shirts with the printed picture of one young lady. Her name is Amit Susana. She's 40. She's a lawyer. She lived by herself with her three cats in the kibbutz of Kfar Aza and she disappeared on October the 7th. And it was only three weeks after her disappearance that the family was informed that she is in Hamas captivity because, you know, so many people were killed and it took authorities so weeks to identify the bodies. So many people didn't even know if their families were dead or alive. Amit's mother and, and sister are in absolute agony and, and they're thinking, will she be released? Like, is she is she be qualified for the release? I mean, she's a woman, but she's not a mother and she doesn't have children. And so they say that they have mixed feelings, like that definitely they will be really happy to see other families reunited with their loved ones. But if they don't see Amit, In, in this initial release of hostages, they will be wondering when her turn will come or will it, will it ever come? And, uh, yeah, and other relatives also spoke about a, a roller coaster of emotions. I just, uh, bumped into someone whose nephew with his two kids was kidnapped from another kibbutz. And, uh, this elderly man told me that, you know, it's, it's a roller coaster that the families have been going on for so long, being torn by both hope and anticipation and, 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 and fear that maybe they will be told that their family members are not alive anymore. So it's a, very, it's, it, it's, it's a very tense moment in Israel, and everyone everyone is waiting. Everyone can't wait to see the lists of the hostages, if they know who's alive, if they know who's going to be released. And obviously, everyone can't wait for the first release to happen.
2: Natalia, may I ask, you've been out of Israel for a little bit, and you've returned recently. When, when you got back, does, is the atmosphere different? What, what have you picked up on since, since, since
1: coming back after a few weeks away? Yeah, that's a very good question, David. I um, I think the atmosphere is, is still the same. It does feel like the country is at war. Uh, you see reservists all around, people in uniform carrying automatic weapons. On On the other hand, we have heard informally, and this is not something that the Israel government has confirmed, we have heard that some of the reservists, some of the 300,000 reservists who were called up after the Hamas attack were offered longer leaves, some of them were basically sent back home, so the economy should be going back to normal. Just yesterday, I was in Tel Aviv, and uh, it was very busy. It looked like a regular day. I would say that the traffic you know, driving to Tel Aviv from Jerusalem was the busiest I've seen in, in, in two months on the other hand uh, yeah this country is still in the middle of tragedy you know you can be walking around in the business district and you see people doing about their, their, their business in the rush hour leaving for, for work me- meeting with friends and on the other hand literally on the other side of the road there's a noisy protest of uh, the hostages families and supporters and picture a picture up after picture plastered on lampposts on benches of all the people who've been taken hostage and that's obviously like a large part, like the most active part of the Israeli society, it uh, doesn't want the government to forget about the hostages or put them on the back burner. So they they definitely, I would say that the postage deal that we've been talking about on this episode is something that definitely came into being following the pressure from the hostages' families because we heard that something that there was something like that on the table weeks ago. And the Israeli government has rejected it. So this is definitely a result of the uh, public pressure that we're seeing.
2: Very Natalia, thank you so much. Battle Lines is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our news, analysis and dispatches from the ground in Israel and Gaza, subscribe to The Telegraph or sign up to Dispatches, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from contributors to this podcast. If you appreciated the podcast, please consider following Battlelines on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. As disinformation is a particular problem during conflict, we are relying on your support more than ever. Battlelines is part of wider Telegraph foreign coverage in our podcasts. If you're interested in finding out more about the war in Ukraine you can listen to Battle Lines's sister podcast, Ukraine, the latest. This episode of Battle Lines was produced by me, David Knowles, and executive producer, Louisa Wells.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.